want to welcome you this morning to Palm Sunday here at Faith Baptist. Uh, just, uh, well, it may not be Palm Sunday anywhere else, but it is here. We've uh, been preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, that's where we are. And uh, so I'd like you to notice in Mark chapter 11 and verse 7, Blessed is He is the title of our message today. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and He sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And may God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. We've asked God as we've gone through Mark's gospel up to this point to remind us of the truth about who Jesus is, about what Jesus did, about what he's doing, about what he taught us. This has been our purpose in preaching through the gospel of Mark. And we come now to this last part of the book as Jesus is ascending up to the city of Jerusalem We call it the triumphal entry because Jesus finally allows the crowd to proclaim him as Israel's Messiah and announce then his kingly reign. And In order to understand this uh, passage today, we're going to have to look at a lot of passages of Scripture. And uh, I do that a lot anyway, but this morning it's going to be a little bit more. So uh, I just want to encourage you all to listen very quickly and uh, very earnestly, and uh, y'all didn't get that at all. I'll, I'll preach as quickly as I can, but uh, there's, there's a lot to this passage, and it deserves our attention. This is a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Remember that for many centuries, most countries were led by kings. Israel was no exception. The death of one king would lead to the coronation of another. It was a ceremony full of pomp and circumstance, carefully planned and orchestrated with great attention to detail the coronation of the new king. It would result then in that new sovereign, uh, whether male or female, implementing or instituting his reign or her reign over the kingdom, The closest we have in our country, thank God, by the way, is the inauguration of a new president. But that gives you a little bit of an idea about uh, what's going on when they crown a new king. You have, of course, the crowds and the shouts. This crowd was at a very important time in Israel because it was at the Passover The time when thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people from all over the world would crowd into that ancient city and the population of Jerusalem would swell, uh, double, some accounts even say triple their normal population. Thousands of pilgrims, of course, had purses full of money. Uh, They needed places to stay. They needed food to eat. They were there for a religious observance, Passover, so there would be sacrifices to be bought and money to be changed and things to be bought and sold and people, of course, to sell them. 
It's a very important time. Very busy time. The crowd coming to Jerusalem had heard of Jesus. The name of Jesus was probably on every tongue. He was the source of thousands of conversations. Multitudes were talking about Him. The news of the fact that just a few weeks earlier He had actually raised a man from the dead who had been dead for four days, had spread. That was only about a two-mile trip from Jerusalem, and our text is actually going to tell us that many of the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem were making a little side trip up to Bethany because they wanted to see Lazarus. Lazarus had such a powerful testimony that, not surprisingly, that the Jews were plotting to kill him, uh, much like Herod had done when he thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. What do we do? Well, we're going to kill him again. I'm sure Lazarus is worried. (laughs) Been there, done that. Uh, Plot to kill Lazarus, such a powerful testimony. We've noted before what a magnificent military leader Jesus would have been. That was what was on these people's minds. It was what was on the disciples' mind. It was what was on that crowd of, at the minimum, would have been hundreds. I mean, Jesus raised crowds of thousands in the middle of nowhere. Imagine how many thousands were thronging Him on this day. Going to Jerusalem and the Passover. He was going the familiar way. He went through Jericho, where, by the way, just yesterday, He healed a man of his blindness who was now traveling along with him. Uh, This was a big moment. But all they were thinking about was the coming king. Think about this military leader. He could provide the army with an unlimited food supply without foraging at all. Like Joshua, he could provide miracle after miracle to move his army from place to place. No obstacle, no river, no ocean, nothing. He could just move it out of the way and move his army around. He could miraculously heal his soldiers who were wounded or killed in battle. He could be like David and turn slingshots and rocks into guided missiles. He'd be like Jehoshaphat, who would send out the singers, and the entire armies of the enemy would die on the spot. Now, they weren't bad singers. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) They were good singers. But they sang the enemy armies of Israel to death. He could do like Elisha did. So that uh, he would... Uh, the armies of the enemy would attack, but they'd hear a great noise, a great thunder. They'd just wipe them all out. It could be like Gideon and send out 300 with trumpets and <laughs> pitchers. The whole armies would flee. Israel had a lot of stories about God's deliverance. They weren't just stories, folk. They really happened. You say, Brother Rich, you believe that? I surely do. I do. I believe every bit of it. And probably a lot more happened that we don't even know about. They knew about 
how God had delivered Israel. But now they're talking about the Messiah. And when it comes to the deliverance business, the possibilities for Jesus Messiah were unlimited. Jesus and his followers could make short order of the Roman occupying forces. No question about it. They could annihilate any legions sent to counterattack, establish Jerusalem as the kingdom and expand his rule beyond that of David or even his greater son, Solomon. So that the rule of the Messiah from Jerusalem would expand literally to the whole world. He could do it. Jesus had already announced his plans. Mark chapter 10. We go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Jesus, you see, was going into Jerusalem on the cross as God's sacrifice for the sins of the world. But all this crowd, all of his disciples were looking right past everything he said. And they were still proclaiming him to be the king. Now the significance of the story was not what everybody was hoping for. But it was an eternally significant story. You see, in the bondage of the Jews to the Romans was a picture of the bondage to sin. They had a far greater problem than the fact that their nation was occupied by the hated Roman garrisons. Their hearts were occupied by the presence and power of sin. The blood of a thousand bulls and goats and sheep had never taken away their sin. Never. All of their religion, all of their ritual had never taken away their sin. And so while their land was occupied by the Romans, their heart was occupied by the presence and the power of sin. Though they were in bondage to the Romans, they were in bondage to something much worse. They were in bondage to sin. This drama had all started back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where Jesus said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's Satan. Between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This is the first messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. They prophesied Jesus then. God revealed Jesus as the seed of the woman. Seed of the woman. And he said, he shall bruise Your head, that is the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. That prophecy is about to happen. It's playing out. As Jesus ascends the hill from Jericho up to the mountain city of Jerusalem, gets on a donkey, rides down across the Kidron Valley and up to the beautiful eastern gate. This is a monumental moment. We'll consider the truth under four headings. We'll see the power. We'll see the prophecy, the purpose. 
and the promise. First of all, notice the power. When he drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite to you, and as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. Mark has recorded many, many times when Jesus has displayed his incredible power, power that identified him again and again and again as the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. But now here's one more display. You might read over this passage and think it's really not all that important, but it's, it's devoted several verses in the sacred text. Uh, why did that Mark linger over this one so much? Well, because it's significant. The colt refers to a foal. In Greek, the word, by the way, is polos. Uh, yeah, our word polo, colt. It refers to a foal, either of a donkey or a horse. In this case, it was a donkey. Jesus knew exactly where the donkey was. He knew exactly who owned the donkey. And he knew exactly what the owner of the donkey would do when his disciples that he sent to get it would say, tell him the Lord has need of it. And he knew it would give it. Well, how did he know all of that? Well, because he is the Son of God. That's how he knew all of that. He, he knew everything that was going on. No man had ever sat on this animal before. You know what's going to happen when somebody sits on that coat for the first time. Didn't happen this time. You see, the power of Jesus is put on display. He knew where the colt was. He knew who owned the colt. He knew that the colt would be released once he said that the Lord had need of it. Not only the owner of the colt was going to submit to him, but that colt itself would submit to him. All of it in a simple and yet profound in its own way display of its power. But again... What makes that significant? The fact that Jesus could ride on a colt without it had ever been ridden on before doesn't sound like much compared to walking on the water. Why this one at this moment? Well, because him riding in Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey was a big deal. First of all, it had been prophesied hundreds of years before by Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt. The foal of a donkey hundreds of years before it had been prophesied. Even more, if you go all the way back to Israel's first coronation ceremony in the Davidic line of kings. Now, of course, there was the line of Saul, and, and God cut off the line of Saul under judgment. So David was given the one, the man after God's own heart. He was promised then that uh, a descendant of his in the line of David would sit on the throne. And the first then coronation of a king in the line of David was his son Solomon. Guess what Solomon rode into Jerusalem on? A mule or a donkey. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? In fact, some Jewish historians have suggested that all of the, uh, the kings in the Davidic line would ride into Jerusalem on their coronation day. You guessed it. On a mule 
or a donkey. Uh, there'll be a king who rides in on a horse. Uh, just hang on, we'll talk about that later this morning. But for right now, uh, the, the act of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was a declaration of power. It was a declaration of his kingly authority. And everybody knew exactly what it meant. The Herod was the one who sat on the throne of Israel. And he was hated. Pilate, the governor, sat on the throne uh, as a governor of Rome. He was hated. Hated. Herods weren't even uh, Jews. They were Edomites. They, they were descendants of Esau. They were hated. Here Jesus, the Messiah, seed of David, established again as king. Oh, they knew exactly what it was. They knew and that brings us from the power then that was put on display to the prophecy that's being fulfilled. And Zechariah's promise of the Messiah riding into Jerusalem was significant, but that's far from being the only one. I'm going to go back to the book of Daniel. This is a lengthy reading. Uh, so just, just watch carefully. D Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. That's seven weeks and then 62 weeks. After 69 weeks, then the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. I don't have time to preach all of the vision this morning of Daniel's 70 weeks, but I understand that many of you may be completely clueless about what that Old Testament prophecy was. The seven, so I'll give you a brief rundown. The 70 weeks was a promise that from the time that Artaxerxes the king would give that decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and they went back to rebuild the Jerusalem, Jerusalem there would be 70 weeks. Those 70 weeks were weeks of years. 490 years. 490 years in all. And so the, he, he named, God named a very specific time from the decree that went out to rebuild Jerusalem until the time that the Messiah would be cut off, Daniel said, would be 483 years. 483 years. Now, God gave them a very specific time. A lot of people have done historical research in this, and they believe that they have worked it out to where they can prove that it happened to the very day. But I don't need to prove it to believe that it happened to the very day. Because God said it, that's good enough for me. 483 years from now, Daniel said, Messiah is going to be cut off. Put that in perspective. In a couple of three years, the United States of America is going to celebrate 250 483 years before this happened. God said, this is going to happen. The Messiah is going to come. So that was a prophecy. 
We had Zechariah's prophecy. And we also have something Jesus said. It was recorded in Luke's account, Luke 19 and 37. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, that is, he's climbed up the Mount of Olives, he's got to the top, he's descending on the east side so that now uh, he can see into Jerusalem. He's headed looking up onto the eastern gate. He's on the descent then of the Mount of Olives. Uh, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the names of the Lord, name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. It was time for these words to be said. It was the moment. If this crowd wasn't here, Jesus said, and I believe exactly what he said, if that crowd wasn't there to shout Hosanna to the highest, the rocks would have started shouting it. It was time for that to be said. Solomon's ascent into Jerusalem on a mule long ago was just a picture of this. It was a time for Jesus as the Messiah to present himself as king of Israel and be rejected. Messiah will be cut off, Daniel said, but not for himself. Not because he had been a bad guy. Not because he had done evil. He would not be cut off for his own sake, not for himself. So at this moment, there is the power displayed with his interaction with a foal of a donkey and riding into Jerusalem on it, fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel, pointing out to this time, this time. I'd be remiss this morning if I didn't tell you that a part of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9 is yet to be fulfilled. There was 483 years and God said the Messiah will be cut off. Well, what about that last seven year period? We know it well. You want to read about it? Read the book of the Apocalypse. Better known as the book of Revelation because it's all about that seven years of Daniel's prophecies yet to be fulfilled. The disciples had no clue that there was going to be this great intervening time between the time when the Messiah would be cut off. And uh, you say, why didn't they know? Because God didn't tell anybody. It was a mystery. Uh, God, God didn't reveal this age of the Gentiles that we're now living in. Uh, they didn't know it. They would know. We know. But that last seven years of Daniel's prophecy is going to happen. God is going to fulfill it to the last jot and the last tittle. It is going to happen. Here's Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting himself as king, as a moment of power. And at that moment of prophecy, that exact moment of fulfilling 483 years to the day, Fulfilling that prophecy. Then we see the purpose. The power of the prophecy and the purpose. 
Many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out into Bethany and the twelve. Here's that incredibly significant moment. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the crowd probably numbering in the thousands, shouting, Hosanna. The Pharisees are mad, of course, and telling Jesus, you hear what these people say? They were worried about what the Romans were going to do. We'd all find out what they would do. The shouts had to happen. The donkey had to happen. The palm branches had to happen. Them throwing their clothes at his feet, that had to happen. Even that was significant. Remember when David had defeated Goliath and Jonathan brought his clothes and his armor and gave them all to David. What was that? It was a symbol of Jonathan's allegiance to David. He was swearing his life to David. He was saying, all that I have and all that I am, I give to you. And I fought Goliath. It was his place. Had Jonathan fought Goliath, Jonathan knew Goliath would have killed him. And he would have stripped him. Everything I had would be gone. And so his act was describing ultimate allegiance to David. When they threw their clothes in before Jesus, they were saying, you have our ultimate loyalty and allegiance. For less than a day, what happens when... Jesus arrives at Jerusalem at the head of this great crowd and the shouts of Hosanna and he goes to the temple. What happens? He looks around and he leaves. He waited for a while. He saw it all. He saw all the hustle and bustle around all the pilgrims. He saw the money changers changing their foreign money for temple money. He, at, at, at a ridiculously escalated rate, by the way, no wonder Jesus called them thieves. He, he saw them selling those uh, official sacrifices, again, at a ridiculously inflated price. He saw all the people wondering, where are we going to stay? Where are we going to observe the Passover? How are we going to do this? Everybody getting all their kids, all their preparations made. He saw it all. Nobody, nobody stopped what they were doing to see to it that Jesus was recognized as the king. Did he ascend the throne? Solomon did. When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, did they put a crown on his head? They put one on Solomon's head. He had already taught them, you see, a, a greater than Solomon is here. Was Jesus anointed? Solomon was. Well, yeah. <laughs> Jesus had been anointed according to John 12 the day before, but not on his head, on his feet.
because he wasn't being anointed to wear a crown. Jesus said she had come aforehand to anoint me under the burial. She anointed his feet. So instead of a crown, a crown and a throne, we get the words of verse 11, Jesus looked around and left and went back to Bethany. Kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? But not insignificant. Luke adds another great detail in his account. As they drew near, Jesus saw the city, verse 41, and wept. Uh, Jesus didn't just have a tear or two sneak out of his eyes. The word that's used there is he wept aloud, great copious tears. He was sobbing aloud, saying, if you'd known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They'd slept through his birth. He was born just a couple of furlongs away from where he was standing when he said this. And most all of Israel slept through it. I'll grant you the shepherds knew. <laughs> I'll grant you the Gentile kings from the east knew. But the Jews, they slept through it. Now here it is, the time of his coronation, and they bought and sold through it. Went right on about their business. Can't help but wonder what happened to the shouting crowd. At the very least, it would have been hundreds. Most likely, again, I say it was thousands. But when Jesus left that night, the Bible said specifically, he left with the twelve. Where did the crowd go? I don't know what they were expecting. Although I strongly suspect. <laughs> with all the miracle working power that Jesus did. They said man he can take care of this in a, in a second. There's only a garrison of Roman soldiers. They'll be gone by nightfall. And the son of David will be sitting on the throne. That's what they were shouting. A son of David. Hosanna to the highest. Your kingdom is going to be put in place. Well, this wasn't a crowning moment, folks. This was a cross moment. Make no mistake, before this week was over, Jesus would wear a crown. A crown of thorns. Before this week went over, he'd have a purple robe on his shoulders. He'd have a scepter in his hand. It was a stick put there by the mockery of Roman soldiers. And 
he would be proclaimed to be the king of the Jews by a Roman hand nailed to his cross. It's all in the story. And we know the story very well. It was a moment of power. It was a moment of prophecy. It was a moment of purpose. And that purpose was the cross. <laughs> but thank God it's also a moment of promise. Gentiles would proclaim Jesus as the king of the Jews. Gentiles would put a crown of thorn on his head. Gentiles would beat him nearly to death and then crucify him. The Jews would cry out, give us Barabbas. The Jews would say, let his blood be upon us. As I've told you many times before in the biblical narrative, God has always and ever only recognized two kinds of people, the Jews and everybody who isn't Jewish. And by the way, the book of Ephesians tells us that he took those two and made them both one. So now there's only one kind of humanity uh, that God recognizes. And that is the new humanity in Jesus Christ. But when you say Jew and Gentile, you've said all of humanity. And what we will see then play out is that verdict that will be rendered. But it started on that very day when he came. He could have been received and crowned as king. He could have. It is within the realm of possibility he had that power. He would say, I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to lay it back, take it back up again. He had far more power than that. The verdict of humanity was passed. It would be a unanimous verdict, Jew and Gentile alike. This is what we think of the kingly reign of Jesus Christ. But I'm here to tell you this morning that the verdict of humanity has been overturned. That would have been a great place for an amen. Since you missed it, I'll say it again. The verdict of humanity on King Jesus has been overturned. And uh, the psalmist prophesied of it long ago. It's a great, great passage. I'll just read it for you this morning. I don't have time to preach it. Psalm 24 and 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And long ago then, the psalmist prophesied of the time when Jesus, the King, would ascend unto the throne, not the throne in Jerusalem at that point in time, but the very throne of God and the throne in heaven. So that when He ascended up on high, and the Bible says He led captivity captive, He was crowned then. He ascended to the shout, Who is this King of glory? The Lord God, mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Jesus was crowned with glory. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us this, You put all things in subjection under His feet. That's Jesus. For in that we put all in subjection under Him. He left nothing that is not put under Him. 
But now we do not yet see all things put under Him. Folk, we're living in that not yet time. We don't see it. But it has already been declared of God. Jesus has already been crowned. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. But we live in that not yet time. We don't see it. But it's already been done. So what do we see? Thank you, the writer of Hebrews tells us. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. Yes, there's that moment of rejection. But Jesus ascended back to the Father, crowned with glory and honor, to receive the crown of glory and to sit on the throne of righteousness. The tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. And the one who sits upon the throne is your king and mine, King Jesus. One more scripture and I'm done. It's a long one, but it's a good one. They're all good. Isaiah 63 and 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. The answer I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples. No one was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I've stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. See, I told you there'll come a time when Jesus will come riding in on a white horse. The host of heaven and the armies of the redeemed. It will be the time of his redeemed. He will fight against his armies. He will do all that they were looking for him to do. When he ascended into Jerusalem so long ago. All the things that they thought he was going to do. That he didn't do. He will do. He'll defeat his enemies. And oh what horrible enemies they are. How horribly they have persecuted His kingdom. How horribly they have persecuted His people. How painful is their rejection. How hostile is their rebellion. But there will come a time when Jesus will come. And He will establish His reign. He will take the crown. He will sit on the throne and destroy His enemies and rule the world from Jerusalem. Brother Rich, you believe that? Every word of it. (laughs) Every word of it. Yes. Uh, You see, uh, we need to get reacquainted with who Jesus is and with what He says and with what He's taught and with what He did and what He's going to do and how we need to live in light of that truth. You see, that verdict of humanity about the kingly rule of Jesus is been overturned. He was crowned in heaven. He will one day assume that crown upon this earth and he will sit on that throne and rule it all. He will.
that rule, that verdict of humanity is going to be ultimately and completely overturned. But there's more. Because you see, a part of this promise is that any person can have your own private time and personal time of reversing that verdict of humanity. How how do I do that? I'm glad you ask. Romans chapter 10 and verse 8 what does it say? It talks about the word of faith that we preach. And what is that word? It is that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, what's that mean? It is to say Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it is. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, reversing that verdict of humanity is in your mouth when you say Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is an expression of what is in your heart. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe that on that day so long ago when He was rejected and crucified and crowned and mocked and scourged, I believe when He did that, He did it for me. And I crown you King Jesus. I proclaim my loyalty to you. I bow before you and submit to you. Yes, Lord Jesus, you are mine. Be my Savior. Be my, uh, forgive me my sins. Be my King. Be my Lord. And at that moment, that confession, yeah, we have crowned Him. It's also my responsibility as a preacher of the gospel to remind you that the, out, the fact of, of that is really not in question. You see, everybody is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that very plainly. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every nation bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven of things in earth and yes even in the pits of hell that's not in the passage it says in things under the earth every tongue every navel bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the outcome is not in question every knee will bow to King Jesus only question is when. You can do it now. You can do it here in this church. You can do it at home watching by television. You can do it as you bow your knee and you confess, yes, I believe. I believe in this King. I believe He died for me. I confess you as Savior and Lord. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You can live all your life and die in your rejection. You'll lift up your eyes in hell. And though you'll still confess Him, it's eternally 
too late. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Remember the Jews were in bondage to a lot more than the Romans. They were in bondage to their sin. All their religion, all their rituals, all their sacrifices, all their giving. It didn't save them. The fact that they were lost has been forever established because they rejected King Jesus and crucified him. They were lost choice before you today is simple. You can either affirm that verdict of humanity and say crucify him or you can bow before him and confess him as Savior and Lord. No choice can be any clearer. No decision is anywhere even close to being so significant. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Let's stand together, please.